This episode is brought to you by Thorn, the industry leader in nutritional solutions. Now, Thorn is actually trusted by eight U.S. national teams and championship teams in the NFL, NBA, and Major League, as well as recently becoming the official sports performance nutrition partner of the UFC. So when it comes to supplements... The tactical athlete space and the athletic space need two things. We need efficacy, meaning the products do what they say they're going to do on the label. And then we need to trust the fact that we are not going to fail either athletic drug tests or work-related drug tests. Now, Thorne has actually been around since the 1980s, where they were used by physicians and hospitals for nutritional supplements for the patients. They were so successful that athletic teams and even special operations teams reached out to them and they started supplying them as well. Very recently, they actually opened their doors to the general public. Now, what sets Thorne apart is they manufacture their own products in a state-of-the-art NSF-certified facility in South Carolina. They use only the purest possible ingredients formulated with no stearates or arbitrary fillers in the cleanest manufacturing process. Most of you listening come from a profession where it can take its toll physically and mentally, and many of us are not able to bolster our nutrition purely with the food that we eat. And that's where supplementation comes in. So if you're ready to maximize your health and performance, visit thorn.com, T-H-O-R-N-E.com. Take a short product quiz to be paired up with the perfect health and fitness supplements. And for you, the audience, if you use the code BTS10, behind the shield 10, BTS10, you will get 10% off your first order. And if you want to learn even more about Thorn, go to episode 323 of Behind the Shield podcast and you will hear my interview with Wes Barnett and Joel Totoro from Thorn. This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com, and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, you can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 425 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute pleasure to welcome on the show Antonika Chanel. Now, Antonika is a veteran of the Coast Guard. And after she experienced some mental and physical health challenges, she transitioned out of the military and into Chinese medicine. So we have an amazing discussion covering a host of topics from acupuncture to Chinese herbs, yoga, and so many other areas. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, 
leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Antonika Chanel. Enjoy. Antonika, I want to start by saying thank you so much for reaching out and uh, coming on the Behind the Show podcast. Thanks so much for allowing me to, to share my voice and to share my, my story with so many people who listen to your show. Well, I, I always start with uh, the first question, where are we finding you? But we need to be more specific. So where are we finding you? And tell me exactly about the house that you live in. <laughs> I love answering that question. I currently live in a tiny home in Austin. This is a new development and a new, um, I guess you would say, a community of people who live on a farm. And it's a farm that is dedicated to growing organic vegetables for hundreds of people in the area. And it's a, it's a new movement. And I love it. My, my place is about 390 nine square feet so i had a um a group from is it south carolina north carolina yeah near, near Asheville. um and there wasn't so much tiny homes they did have you know apartment um options and things like that but it was the same thing they called it an agrihood and so they built the entire community around this farm so the same exact thing i, sp- I spoke to them in the middle of the covid um, epidemic and they had no issues with you know obtaining healthy food during all that but then they also had the focus, even though their square footage wasn't as small as where you are, the focus was still on energy efficiency and, you know, environmentally conscious uh, construction as well. That's exactly what this is. It's an agri-hood. We're in phase one and there's going to be five phases developed over the next five years. So I'm basically living in a construction zone. It's really nice and quiet, but the farm is going at full force and we've got a whole acre full of uh, food that we can harvest every Saturday. That's amazing. You said that was in Austin? Austin, Texas, just right outside of Austin, Texas, maybe like 15 minutes outside of the the city limits, not very far at all. Okay. Yeah. Because I I know a lot of people, Joe Rogan, you know, a lot of people that I know are moving from California, especially to the kind of Austin area. So you noticed the surge in, uh, you know, out-of-state immigrants? I'm actually one of those people that has done that. <laughs> well, I'm an immigrant too, so we can talk safely. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me about that. Um, before we get into your, your early life, uh, what was your experience? Where did you move from? Where was the last place you were? And then, and then what's your experience of moving to that area? So before I came out to Austin, I was living in California, working with a private client um, and helping them achieve their health personal health goals. And before that, I was in Colombia and I was living in an ashram and just really deepening my own personal practice after living on a cruise ship for seven months, treating people from all over the world with East Asian medicine and educating them on the benefits of East Asian medicine. And that's just been my passion for the past 
decade, I've dedicated my life to really getting elbow deep into herbal formulas and uh, acupuncture, home therapies, and helping people understand how to reverse their chronic disease, mental health, um, and restore their health through this ancient ancient medicinal practice. Beautiful. Well, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. So I want to start at the very beginning. So where were you born? And then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings? I'm the only child. My parents had me at a very young age. They were in high school. My mother was probably 17 when she had me. And my dad went right into the military after I was born. But my parents lived apart for quite a while before they even got married. And my mom was a single mom for a while. And we lived in Arizona and life was hard for us. We grew up on welfare. And my mom was really worried about how she was going to raise me and, and the kind of lifestyle that I would live or the kind of life that I would have growing up as a kid. And so she did all her, her best to find my dad and get back together again. And my parents decided that the best way for me to get a good education free from a lot of the negative influences here in the United States was to go overseas. And at the age of nine, I traveled to Japan and we lived in Japan for five years. And it was a great experience, but it was also like a not so great experience. I wanted to be that kid who grew up in an American high school and wanted to be a cheerleader and go to football games. And I didn't get that when I was in Japan. Some of it I got, but not all of it. But it was definitely a, a culture, ex cultural experience that I wouldn't have gotten otherwise if I lived in the United States. And whereabouts in Japan? I lived in a on a military base called Misawa, Japan. It was a massive, massive base. And most of the people who live there are from our military members that come from all over the country. And uh, many of us are are interracial, you know, we're mixed. We're half Filipino, half black, half half um, half white, half, you know, Japanese. So there was a lot of interracial relationships and, and marriages there. But so it was awesome. I felt like I was like, I felt like I fit in. Beautiful. Because I lived in um, Osaka for 15 months. And, and yeah, I mean, the cultural, cultural difference when you move over there as a, yeah, God, what was I? 25 26 year old man you know obviously you have that well-established culture but yeah i mean when you're actually immersed into the japanese culture it is so different than american culture it must have been there must have been some incredibly you know amazing things but also probably some challenging things culturally i loved every single moment of it looking back on it we started japanese culture in elementary school and throughout elementary school and high school you there was japanese culture class and you, we were always immersed into the, the festivals that went on. There was always Japanese language immersion. I, I loved every single moment of it. In fact, that was the very first time I experienced my first acupuncture needle. Oh, really? So tell me about that. What led you to the first pinprick? <laughs> I think I, w I was in... I was in middle school. It was career day. And there were a lot of people in, in Japan who come out to the high school or the elementary school and they go into certain rooms and all the students would walk around to the, the rooms and they would explore and observe these different career paths. And it was really interesting because you get to ask all these questions and kind of like explore and discover new things. And one of the people who were teaching us about these different careers was an acupuncturist. 
And he was explaining to us in English what acupuncture is. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. It's a needle. I can't stand shots and I'm afraid of needles. But my friend next to me was brave and she put out her arm and he put a needle in it. And she's like, oh, it doesn't even hurt. And so I was like, oh, I guess I'll try it. And he put a needle in me too. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. So I never even, I never had a full treatment, but to experience how painless that needle went into my hand when I was like 14 was a shocker. And then after that, I didn't experience acupuncture for like years, years, until years, years later. Yeah, it's an interesting journey to that point. So what about uh, language? I, for some reason, I randomly found myself in a college class studying Japanese back in the UK. And, uh, you know, it it's an interesting language. I love the fact that there's, there's none of the, I guess, some... Um, not vocabulary, what's the word I'm looking for? The pronouns and you know, adverbs and all the things that we use, the, the male, female that you find in German and French and Italian um, is a very simple language to learn, but obviously the kanji and katakana and those were, were very complex. But what I also found funny was then you had the American words. So, you know, the Japanese for cheeseburger was chizubugu. <laughs> you know, so there was, <laughs> there was some of those gimmies as well. But were you able to, to get pretty fluent by the end of your time there? It was pretty much a, a requirement to know enough to be able to get around and off base. So we had to know how to greet ourselves and to ask for directions. That was just that just kind of kind of comes with living there for five years. On AFN News, you would see you know different phrases in Japanese like "domarikato" or "doko desu you know, "where is this?" or "thank you very much." And so those became very um, normal for people to to know and understand when you lived there for five years. And then there is this element of getting involved with the culture and meeting other Japanese people during festivals like the Tadabata Festival or the Cherry Blossom Festival. And that really brought like an interesting way of communicating and, and connecting with Japanese people. Because even though there's that language barrier, there's like that, that body language and facial expressions that you really, that become a language and you learn how to communicate using sign language and it just becomes fun. So the language barrier was a difficult, but it was also very fun and interesting to to explore through other ways to communicate. Yeah, and I found it quite. Uh, you know, there was a dichotomy to it. So, in, engaged in conversation, they were incredibly, you know, upbeat, positive, happy people. But what struck me when we first got there, we we're a bunch of stuntmen and women. Um, we go down. We were in Osaka, and there was this one shopping area called Sinshai Bashi. And it was a kind of narrow corridor with, with stores on either side. And people would barge into you and we're like, what the hell? You know, and back home, that's kind of like, you know, you turn around with your fist clenched. And then you realize that it's not personal, rude or anything. It's just when they're, when that particular city, at least, when they were going from A to B, they didn't really acknowledge each other. They were kind of like busy bees. So if, you know, if you, if you bang shoulders with someone, you didn't even respond. So it was, it was a very, you know, very different thing. And at first, a lot of people kind of, when those two cultures clashed, got offended or whatever. And then we realized, you know, it was, it was our, our, uh, uh, you know, the, our failure to understand their culture that, okay, no, no, it's just, it's different, but it, there's no malice intended in this. It's just, you know, they, 
they're so so friendly so engaged but when you know when you're in the streets for example you don't walk and eat you know there's another thing that, that they they don't do so those kind of idiosyncrasies initially led some, to some tension between a few people until we realized that we were just ignorant to their culture that's definitely a culture shock and it does take somebody who lives in japan to explain that and when we do when an American moves to Japan, they're often greeted by a Japanese-American community that tells them, okay, this is the way that you eat soup. Like you'll go to a restaurant and if you slurp your soup really loudly, then that's, that's actually a compliment to the chef. <laughs> Whereas that would be something rude here in the United States. People would think that, oh my gosh, she's so loud at drinking and eating her soup. I wish she would just like stop that. So those kinds of um, gestures are different. And I totally understand what you mean about the pushing and the shoving because like, for example, Tokyo is a massive city and there are rush hours. It's just kind of like in America, in LA traffic, it's chocker block. You can't get anywhere. You, you know to either not be on the road or be on the road because you're not going anywhere. Well, for them, it's human traffic and they have all got to fit in these tiny spaces and get, and get home for because they're on a mission and that's just the way it is. But they are very polite people always saying excuse me and greeting you're absolutely right with that yeah well and, and people have probably seen this on tv but it's absolutely true when you go to tokyo there are men usually with white gloves that will shove you into um a subway as many people as they can physically get and it was okay being six foot i tended to be you know a little bit higher but i mean some of the shorter performers that i work with i mean they it would freak them out because we were literally like sardines and god forbid now as a first responder if there'd been any kind of tragedy i mean the stampede would have been horrendous but like as you said the density of the population was such that that was the only way they could get from a to b that's right that's right so what about transitioning back then so now you know you've spent you know five years immersed in the Japanese culture, obviously with, with, a, with an American side as well with the base. Um, what was your transition after that? Where did you go next? We traveled back to the United States maybe once or twice during our tour in Japan to visit family. But immediately after that, we went to, to England and I lived in Alconbury, England and finished my high school education there. We really love the experience of living in other cultures and other countries because we find that it just really enriches our life. And to have that kind of opportunity wouldn't otherwise happen if we weren't a family in the military. So we resided in Alconbury, England, and I liked it so much that I was able to pursue my college degree, my undergrad at Sulford University. And I would have to say that that was probably the most exciting time of my life. It was cold for one, but the most exciting time of my life because I got to be, I got to experience a different way of education and, and just meet people from all over Europe. My undergrad was full of somewhat people from other parts of Europe and not one of us was from the same culture or the same country. I was the only American and we literally had one person from almost every country in Europe. Well, did it surprise you as well? Because a lot of people, I hear them refer to, you know, Europeans and usually they're kind of, um, you know, the focus is the UK as white you know, almost like we're a bunch of blonde hair, blue eyed, you know, Aryans just running around the island. The UK that I grew up in, even though the rural part, you know, wasn't as ethnically mixed, 
England as a whole, the UK is extremely diverse with this, you know, tapestry of, of cultures from all over the world, obviously, because at one point the UK was, you know, colonizing and that's, that's not the, the best part of our history. But the upside of that is now we have this, you know, amazing smorgasbord of, of cultures. So were you struck by that too, that the British people themselves were diverse? You know, I think I, I just, it, it seemed normal to me. I had never experienced um, just race as an, as a negative thing. I never felt discriminated against. I never felt like um, I was judged because of my color when I, when I lived in England. It, there just seemed to be a, a sense of community and everybody respected everybody. Of course, there were pockets in certain places when I would go out with friends that there was some type of uncomfortable you know, conversations. But for the most part, I felt that I was really in my element just as much as I was when I was living in Japan and going to school with other friends of mine who were mixed race. So I really appreciate the diversity that England had to offer and even the, the many cultures. I mean, I lived in the middle of Rush Home and Rush Home is like Indian town. So it's like one strip of curries and kebabs and, you know, all of the English people loved going there because that was what we did when after we went out to the pub, we went to a rush home to get food. Yeah. And again, people don't realize that. Like, oh, what's traditional, you know, British food and fish and chips? I'm like, no, it's curry, it's stir fry, it's <laughs> Ethiopian <laughs> food. I mean, you name it. So, yeah, no, it, it's it's such an amazing place. And that's, I think that's a part of, you know, the that whole element. And obviously, we don't want to have this whole discussion on, on race, but that's what just blows me away is... I think all it takes to, to solve some of these ridiculous prejudices and ignorance that we see is just to get on a damn plane and go see a different culture. And you'll realize that we're all the same people. We just, you know, there's good and there's bad as well. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, the, the pigmentation of our skin is irrelevant. There is, you know, so much depth to the cultures, but we're all fundamentally looking for the same thing, you know, security, food, raising our children, you know, and, and, and happiness. It's, it's completely right. And I remember having conversations with some of my my colleagues from school and they would ask me these funny questions and I wouldn't know how to answer them. They'll ask me questions like, is life really like what you see on Jerry Springer? Is it really like what you see on Ricky Lake? And <laughs> I'm just kind of like, well, you know, I don't know because I never really lived in the United States, but I guess so. But I never watched those shows either. And so I was just as baffled and unsure why life had to be that way when I was living in England. So I guess you could say I was just as much English and American as they were because <laughs> I was clueless to these types of um, drama uh, shows that were, were going on in people's lives. Yeah. Well, and as you know, the reality is most Americans are just, you know, going to work and raising their kids. They're not, you know, dressing as a giant baby or, <laughs> you know, in a clan <laughs> suit or whatever, you know, horrendous script was going to be that day. Um, well, then moving forward, so you're in the UK. Kind of walk me through you know, the journey into the military from there. So I spent nine years in the UK, and even though I wanted to stay longer, there was a part of me that said, Antonika, you got to go back to the US and you have to start you know, a life in the US. So I, I, for the first time in my entire life, I moved to Florida, and I really struggled with the transition. That was like a massive culture shock for me because... I really didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't know anybody. This is way before Facebook. I think maybe this was like the my, 
MySpace time. MySpace was just getting started. And I didn't even know where to go to get a job. I didn't I didn't know how to get a car. So I, I found residence with some old family friends. And I ended up working at Baskin Robbins with a bachelor's degree in television-based media business in Spanish. And it was such a, an embarrassing experience for me because I couldn't believe that I had this incredible education and I didn't even know where to go to use it, to apply for a job, to, to get into TV, to get into media. So I humbly worked at Baskin Robbins until I found an opportunity to become a substitute, substitute teacher and work in the education system in Palm Beach, uh, Florida. And that's when really life started to pick up for me. I was teaching high school students as a substitute teacher. I was teaching some really wealthy families and in the Esquire, the horse area, people where people had horses and, um, and I just, I loved it. And I almost considered becoming a teacher, but I wanted to continue exploring what Florida had to offer. So I moved to Miami and I continued substitute teaching. And then I started running a swimming school and I just kind of like stuck myself in different parts of opportunities to kind of like figure out what I really wanted to do in life. I wanted to be a television presenter, but auditioning for MTV and auditioning for these TV shows was very competitive. You had to be bilingual and so I had to figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do to to make a living out here? So I didn't have a mentor. I, I really struggled. It was like paycheck to paycheck. I I didn't know what was going on with my life. I was starting to have health conditions because of the amount of stress that I was experiencing. And I was at the YMCA and I was talking to this lifeguard and I was we were having this heart to heart conversation about what I wanted to do with my life. And he asked me that question. I says, you know, I want to change lives. I want to, I want to be someone who someone looks at and says, thank you for giving me a chance or helping me get through this. And we, he looked up to the sky and he says, you can do so many different things. He says, you can be the search and rescue team like that helicopter up there in the sky, saving people's lives in the ocean. And a massive light went off in my head. And I thought, that's what I want to do be female, in the Coast Guard, flying an aircraft, life-saving, that is like leaving a legacy. That is what I, that's the story that I want to live. So I went to MEPS. I took the, the ASVAB test. I was told that I could become an officer. So I took the AFOQT and I was excited about being an officer. I interviewed and I was let down. I, I didn't get picked up for OCS, but I did get picked up for a guaranteed A school in aviation. And I thought, wow, this is going to set me up. I'm going to become an officer after this. And I'm going to be a minority. I'm going to be female, bilingual. Like, I'm going to change the world. You know, that's the kind of like feeling I had inside of me. And I went off and started my career. I worked in in Miami and at Air Station Miami back before when it was just land and an air station. Right now, it's like there's a signature private um, airport there, as well as the military uh, Coast Guard station. And I worked on aircraft. I worked on the jets. I worked on the the helicopters, doing fuel samples, ripping apart the electrical units, putting them back together. I was 
really excited about my career. And the coolest thing about it was that I was the only female on deck with 150 men. And I thought that that was just life-changing for a lot of people, a lot of women who probably have desired a path like this. Oh, that's beautiful. So did, did you actually get to fly? I did. I was what they call a duck in a search and rescue training operation. And we would go up in the aircraft, in the, in the helicopter at night. They would hoist me down into the gate or the cage, into the water. They would hoist the cage up, fly off for about 10 minutes or so, circle back around, and they would have to find me in the middle of the ocean at nighttime. <laughs> so good thing I wasn't afraid of sharks back then. I surf, so the ocean is like my second home. But if somebody was afraid of sharks, it probably would freak out. It was pitch black. So we would go up in these aircraft rescue missions and practices and exercises, and I would get hoisted up. We would do that a couple of times. The search and rescue, uh, you know, airmen would drop down to the water and swim over to me, ask me if I'm okay. So we did a lot of those things. Also, I flew in the jets and the Falcons. We did search and rescue surveillance over, over Key West and um, used a lot of the equipment in the aircraft. And to see how this equipment works in, in real life was exciting. And then to see how to fix this equipment too, because you know, the Coast Guard's like the stepchild of the military. We have to fix everything. Parts don't come right away. And we have to be very resourceful. So to see things break down and to be able to put them back together again was definitely a, a, a trade that you can really only get in the military. And then occasionally other aircraft like C-5s, Air Force One would come in. We would get a tour of it. We'd get to see all the new technology of some of the newer aircrafts coming in. And it was just a cool, a cool thing. I would bring in the aircraft from the flight line and just wash the aircraft, looked after, after it. It was just really cool. I loved it. Every moment of it. Just back to, to the duck thing, I'm just trying to, you know, in, envision it. So was were you um, like a decoy pilot for the search and rescue to, to practice on? Was that the role of the cage? Yes, it's like doing a search and rescue mission. They have to, for example, if, some, if a, a boat capsized and there's an EPIRB and an EPIRB is a signal that goes off to the, the the SARS and the aircraft has to come around and find that signal and they put the spotlight on and then they find you and then they hoist you up. And so there's these operations that we have to do. It's called search and rescue operations. You have a you have a pilot, you have two pilots, and then you have the search and rescue swimmer, and then you have an, an AET, which is the electronic technician or a mech who hoists the cage down into the water in support of the search and rescue operation. And then you normally have a U.S. Coast Guard um, boat that is circling the area to be an in-water support system. Well, it's great hearing about the Coast Guard. So my uh, my father-in-law actually is, he retired. I, I'm not going to butcher his rank because I always get it wrong, but he was he was quite high up on the um, on the ranking structure there. And then I've had, you know, some Coast Guard people. One, one was uh, assigned to... The harbor in New York when 9/11 happened, and that was another, you know, 
lesser known story of the mass uh, evacuation that the Coast Guard did on that day from the island. Um, so with with your career there, whether it was personally or whether it was, uh, you know, men and women that you work with, what were some of the notable rescues you were, during your time there? There were, there were quite a few rescues, um, rescues with people crossing the Atlantic and we'd have to go and, and, and do search and rescue there. The boats capsizing during hurricane season too. That was a, a, a really important time. Um, we were always helping other air, air, other air stations in support of, um, their military needs too. I was not in the military during 9-11. However, that experience that I remember that day very clearly, that day I decided that that I would have a military career. And I was in England at the time when that happened. And I decided I would have a military career because my heart just really wanted to serve my country. And that's why I, I joined the military as well. That was like another reason. Um, I did have I did do service in New York. I was stationed in um, Staten Island, and I worked directly for the command there as a command duty driver when I was an airman. And I would drive him around to all the different ports, and I would participate and and escort the captains, because there were two at the time, to all their functions. And I was able to see and meet the vice commandant, the commandant. I, I was also able to participate in the inauguration of, of Obama, which was interesting, and just really be a part of prevention, prevention in the sense of making sure that there were no threats during these these incidents and then reporting these, these incidents as they happened. So I think we did our job so well that there were very few times when we encountered these um, these these traumatic experiences or um, times of when there was when we needed to call for emergency. And that's what really the Coast Guard is all about. It's about safeguarding. You know, there's seven missions in in the Coast Guard, and it's all about just making sure that everybody's safe and and preventing any anything bad from happening. Beautiful. Well, it's funny you said about 9-11 because I was actually in Japan when 9-11 happened. And, you know, I came into our building. All, you know, my friends were down this main TV room. And I guess the first plane had hit the, the building. And then we're standing there asking everyone what happened. And then, you know, lo and behold, the second one hits. So, yeah, that's that's a very, very clear image for me too. Yeah. Right. Well, then with your military journey, tell me when you started experiencing you know, some physical ailments, um, you know, wellness issues, whatever it was that kind of started you down that wellness path. It, it happened very early in my career and uh, I ignored it. I ignored a lot of the, the the negative remarks that were given to me because I'm I'm female. And I never pulled that like card where it said, Oh, I'm female. I'm going to, you know, turn you in for sexual harassment. I never pulled that card. I never really like felt that I needed to. So I just internalized a lot of the, the, the slandering and the the words that people would say, and I just kind of felt that, you know, this is the world that I'm in, and this is what I chose, and that's not important to me. What's important to me is learning my skill, and I think that sometimes 
when we are in a position of, of service, that we put those feelings aside because we regard them as not important. And so over time, I just buried it. And I didn't think that they were important until I had a confrontation with a superior. And that's when I realized that maybe this wasn't a place for me. I, I really felt like I didn't belong, but I ignored it and I continued. I went to aviation school. I was the, again, I was the only female in my class. And I met one other female who was like me. And you could tell that our energy was just different from everyone else. You know, there's just a, a different vibe. We were, we were so unsure if we were going to make it through, through aviation school. You know, there was one female who was fighting her way to get through um, air rescue school, which is probably the hardest school in the entire military, well, for sure, the Coast Guard. Because of her small nature, I'm five foot one and she was five foot one as well. And because of her small nature, they just didn't feel that that was like a, a the position for a woman to be in. So emotionally, I, I dealt with a lot of things. And that emotional discomfort and uh, issues that it was going on eventually evolved into health concerns. And those health concerns were, you know, women's health concerns, having to take antibiotics for things. Um, sometimes it, once you start taking like antidepressants or getting on some kind of drug to, to help control that mental health, that's when you're kind of looked at as someone who is just not fit for duty. And that's when I realized that I have to, this has to change. Like if it's not, if it doesn't change for me in the career that I I'm in, then I have to make the conscious decision to change my career and change what's happening from the outside. And that's when I realized that I needed to make, I needed to pivot. So I pivoted my, my whole entire career and I, I allowed my career in the Coast Guard to be something that was going, that would provide me with the education that I needed in order to launch my second career. And so I took advantage of the service in the sense of the GI Bill. And I think that that was the smartest thing that I could have ever done. Of course, I was persuaded to stay to stay in. I was told that when I left the Coast Guard that I would never, I would never make it in the real world and that 90% of the time people come right back into the, into the Coast Guard. But I was determined that I was going to do something different. So when it comes to, like, I guess when it comes to, was there anything like traumatic that happened to me? Did I, did I go and, you know, walk into a fire and then come out and, and have like that kind of experience? Like some of these service members go through. No, that's not what I experienced. I experienced something else. But it was enough for me to realize that there is a wide demographic of people who experience things much profound that are not being addressed. And that's what I saw. And that's what I wanted to, to live up to. I wanted to be able to say, Hey, there is a, a healthcare, there is a service. There are people out there that can really help you get past the PTSD, the trauma, the, um, the negative experiences you've been dealing with emotionally after you've been, living and serving for that many years in whatever branch of service you're in. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say that because <clears throat> with the uh, the trauma, that's kind of what's been 
held up as you know the cause of PTSD in my profession as well. So you know, for a long time, we've said, "Oh, well, James, you saw that thing and you saw that thing, so that's probably why you know you struggle, or you were at nine eleven, or the Vegas shooting, or you know the Paris attacks, whatever it was." But there are so many other elements, and it's funny because I'm always careful. It's not it's not complicated, but there, it, it can be complex sometimes, and that there, there are multi layers. And one of those layers that I think is very powerful, and I see it affect my peers, male, female, you know, all colors and creeds, is the organizational stress. Now, you sadly, you know, had specific prejudice aimed at you, but my last place where I worked, the prejudice was was simply. I wanted to make the department better. The standards were so low, the complacency was so high, and I kept pushing and pushing, and that was a prejudice. I just got told to shut the hell up and, you know, kind of isolate it that way. So I don't think people understand how negatively powerful that kind of organizational stress is. Oh, I, I agree 100%. And not only did I experience it, but I also saw it in my in my peers. And we just accept it. We're just, you're right. They tell you to shut up. You don't have the rank and you either go with it or you get out. And so you have to make that choice. And a lot of people stay in because, you know, they're taking care of families and this is some, this is their pension or this is their livelihood. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well then, so, you know, you said that you use the GI Bill for education. So kind of walk me through your transition out. Well, I already had a bachelor's degree at the time and I had, I had applied for OCS three times and I just thought three times a charm. This means that this is not for me. There is something much greater for, for, for me. And when I didn't get that commission, I, I felt very defeated. I wanted to be a protocol officer and I felt defeated because I thought I was starting to think maybe it's the color of my skin. Maybe it's because I'm female. And it was interesting because there were people who were getting these appointments, but they couldn't tell me why I wasn't getting this appointment. You know, I felt that I had great recommendations and I, I just felt like I fit the bill. I, I walked the walk, I talked the talk, I did everything, I served, I volunteered. So that's when I decided these are all the things that were telling me that you need to move on. So I took the GI Bill and instead of actually not using it, I took a couple of years off, went into the yachting industry because I really wanted to travel. I wanted to travel on a yacht and and be a, a yachty and so I did that for about four or five years and then about my fifth year I decided that I actually needed to go back to school but I didn't know what for and while I was going through yachting and transitioning from Coast Guard to yachting I was on quite a bit of medication and I had to get off of it it wasn't helping me and I was seeing that the medication was causing me to have these other negative side effects so someone mentioned to me why don't you try acupuncture and I was lucky. I was one of those people who lived in a city where the school offered veterans free acupuncture treatments. And until this day, that school still offers free acupuncture treatments. And it is not government funded, believe it or not. It is basically because the dean of the school is so appreciative of service members and what they do. And this is somebody who comes directly from China, immigrated to the United States, developed the school and saw a need in the community and decided that she wanted to provide this community with service. So for two years in between the transition of being in the Coast Guard into yachting, I went to Chinese medicine and got free treatment once a week to help me get off of medication. 
And within the first two treatments, I saw a significant difference in my way of being and my sleep and just my level of, of, of happiness and, and just and energy. And so from then I knew I, I can't stop. So I kept going every week when I was in town in port. And this happened for, I guess, about five years. And one of the girls who was in the program, she says, you've been coming here for so long and you've been getting such great results. Have you ever thought about enrolling and becoming a Chinese medicine doctor? And I laughed in her face. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> I was like, are you kidding me? This stuff sounds like magic. There's no way I can learn this. There's no doctors in my family. I'm not um, Asian. <laughs> I'm not Asian. <laughs> and she says to me, and I'm not, I, at the time, I'm Christian, at the, at the time, non-denominational, very into, you know, going to church and um, believing in God. And she came to me, she gave me this rock and it was a jade stone and it had the word imagine on it. And she says, I'm graduating this year. And I want to give you this stone. I says, I should be giving you a gift. And she says, no, this is for you. She says to me, imagine the lives that you would change. Just imagine the lives that you would change if you stepped out of your comfort zone and did something different and applied yourself to becoming a Chinese medicine doctor. And that hit me like a ton of bricks in my heart. I felt that this was like a message, a complete stop in my in my life and saying, you are now moving from recovering from your health concerns, living on a yacht as a yachty. There is no future for that career. So it's time to step into the next career. Within three weeks after talking to my captain, I asked for permission if this would be a good idea, if I could still keep my job. He fully supported me. And I was able to maintain another three years of being in the yachting industry and going to school full time and serving as a reservist in the Coast Guard. It was the most difficult experience in my entire life having those three jobs, so to speak. But my Coast Guard, my, my GI Bill footed me the whole entire time. And that's when I realized that all the sacrifices I've made in my career accumulated to me being able to l apply myself to changing people's lives for the rest of my life. That's incredible. And I've heard not even so much on this podcast and other podcasts where, you know, it's usually a military host. Um, you know, that's, that's a big regret for a lot of veterans is that they do transition out and they don't take advantage of it. They find themselves in a job rather than tr truly chasing another profession to transition into. Yeah, you're, you're right. And I, I felt like I was led down this path because now that I'm here and currently I'm on a doctoral program, I'm seeing a completely different light in the sense that there is a need for policy to be written. There is a need for, you know, Chinese medicine to have an established department within the medical facility within the military. And it's just like a slow moving process right now that I hope to see pivot in the next couple of years. And if if more if more people could just kind of see what could happen if you just took advantage of that GI Bill and applied it to an education that would yield more opportunity, then I, I really feel that it would help move our our country forward and it would just help allow people to see life from a different perspective. 
you know, because that is free money. That's what you fought for. That's what you've lived for. And that's given to you. So go in and take advantage of that opportunity. And I think the military is pretty much the only service, correct me if I'm wrong, that even has that massive um, incentive. I'm not sure if, if that's offered in, in firefight for firefighters or not. No, usually, and it, and it's not really specific to our profession. It's usually if you work for a city or a county, they'll give you, you know, X amount to go towards the education, but it's usually not enough to cover any, you know, certainly not higher education level. So it's, uh, it's, I mean, you know, anything is better than nothing. So I'm not being ungrateful, but it varies from city to county as well. But as far as, if we're comparing professions, you know, there's no VA for police and fire either. So when those men and women retire, you know, that's it. Thanks, bye. Here's Cobra, you know, $1,000 a month. Good luck. So, yeah, I, I would say the first responder professions, you know, if if we could have some of the programs that the the veterans have, I think it would set my men and women up much better as well. It, you're so deserving of it as well. You know, I think it should be the standard across the board. Absolutely. Well, um, when when I was still, you know, on shift, when I was still working, um, I used to get horrendous migraines. And I, I think ultimately I found it was probably, you know, postural because I ended up having to pay out of pocket for a chiropractor when I hurt my back, which is another irony. I could get surgery for free, but I couldn't get a chiropractor paid for. Um, but and it was the same with acupuncture. So I there's a, a doctor in town here, Dr. Wang, who I used to go and see. And, uh, I, you know, it didn't resolve my headaches, but it absolutely deregulated my nervous system. I'd end up falling asleep on, on this table with his <laughs> soothing Asian mu- music and, you know, pins all over my face. Um, but, you know, I, I was absolutely a fan of it, you know. And again, I think it's so arrogant to disregard thousands of years worth of plant medicine from our forefathers and, you know, foremothers on you know and then go oh no we got it all sorted out now yeah we're, we're making these chemicals that's going to fix everything you know so so tell me about you know what worked for you and then and then let's start kind of exploring the world of chinese medicine well what worked for me was that first acupuncture treatment i mean we're talking i was terrified of needles but i i just wanted something to help me get past what i was experiencing i didn't want to have to claim disability for the rest of my life. I didn't want to have to do that. And so I was willing to take a couple of needles just to, to feel different. And it was it, it was just that one treatment. And I I've never felt any different before in my life. I just, I couldn't believe the amount of energy that moved through me. I didn't even know what was happening. And so that was enough to pique my curiosity. And after that, I started taking herbal herbal formulas and that started to pique my curiosity even more. I didn't even know what I was taking. I just knew that I was feeling better. Next thing you know, I didn't have the symptoms that I was experiencing. And I I enrolled. I enrolled in school. Um, I guess the, the easiest thing that, that anyone could possibly do at this moment in time right now is to look up a community acupuncture clinic. Because, you know, some people think, oh, it doesn't, insurance doesn't pay for this. So if insurance doesn't pay for this, then I'm not going to do it. Well, that's kind of irresponsible because you can go to a, a clinic that you can get treatment for something like nominal, like $20, $30. 
And acupuncture is cumulative, so you have to get multiple treatments in order to get the right the results that you that you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, I wish I wish there was more support, you know, because we talk about um, you know your journey, yeah, the 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 issues that you were um, trying to you know bury and suppress, and you ended up on the pharmacological route for you know your mental ill health. And I think that's what really, really, you know. It's one of the glaring errors, glaring um, failures that we have in in healthcare is that you can fast track to drugs, no problem, you know, no copay, you know, this is covered in workman's comp, but you can't, you know, have chiropractic, you can't have acupuncture. Now, I agree 100%. I ended up just paying out of pocket. It was what it was. But what we need to change is that the acupuncturists and, you know, chiropractors and, um, you know, physical therapists and, and nutritionists are on that same, you know, are in that same group so that we can work on prevention rather than disease management, which is so popular at the moment. Very true. And and it's it's hard for us on both sides. You know, I've been on both sides. I've been the patient. Now I'm the practitioner. And it's like, okay, we want to help. We insurance doesn't cover this, or if it does cover it, it covers like maybe like six treatments, but it doesn't necessarily pay a practitioner, what they need to be paid in order to continue providing the service. You know, we all have to have, we all have to eat. So it's really difficult for, for both sides. And that's why we offer these community clinics and these opportunities. And, you know, another thing too, is like the herbs aren't expensive. You know, the, the, the care is, is, is normal as in the sense that, you know, the, the visit is, but it's something that I know for sure that when you when you stay dedicated and true to it and you're using western medicine with eastern medicine there is a possibility and a very strong possibility and i would say like 90% of the time you're going to come out of in the end 90% better than you were where you were at absolutely well so let's explore acupuncture first so i just love to you know to to start as a complete layman so explain you know the the history of it and how how it works. You know so that people understand. You know we, I think a lot of people have seen you know the caricatures of someone covered in needles, but you know what's the actual science and philosophy behind it? I love answering this question, and it is a medical system. It's a complete medical system, Chinese medicine, and acupuncture is one modality of many modalities. So there's uh, there's five branches. And acupuncture is the movement of life force energy, which we call chi. And this life force energy is like this bioelectricity that runs through our system through what we call meridians or channels. And this is proven scientifically through um, anatomy trains. There's a, a, a program called Anatomy Trains, and they show that these meridian systems actually work and they're, they're like the conduit that run the energy runs through and each acupuncture point is kind of like what the yogis call chakras and these chakras are like these vortexes these these like areas where energy is most dense and so acupuncture moves the blood it moves the fluids it moves the energy that is needed in order to nourish the organs and then you have herbology herbology is the utilization of of herbs that have different actions. So some herbs are cooling, others are moving blood, 
They are um, other herbs warm. Some help with bowel movements. And all these herbs have these different actions and they've been studied for thousands of years and recorded in traditional Chinese text. And that complements acupuncture. And so when you're getting a treatment, you're really going to get more of a benefit when you do acupuncture and herbs. It's a 50-50. We move the blood, engage the immune system, engage the nervous system, and then in between treatments, we're supporting the system with herbal formulas. And then we have other modalities that are home care. You've got things like gua sha therapy, um, moxa. You have... um, other different types of acupuncture, like using a tation needle or shonishin tools, which are tools that you can purchase from an acupuncturist, and they show you where to activate these points that are going to help you in between your acupuncture treatments. So essentially, you're continuing the care. And then we also have um, um, food therapy. And, and food therapy is really looking at the resources that you're eating at home. Here in the United States or in our culture, Western culture, we look at nutrition and we look at the value of protein and minerals and magnesium, but we, we don't look at the, the value of food temperature and how temperature of food can really positively impact our system. So say, for instance, you are running with night sweats and you're having a hard time sleeping at night. Well, it could be the food that you're eating that's causing you to stay up a lot, a lot of the times as well. So eating more foods that are cooling, cucumbers, celery, finding, identifying a diet that's going to help you, you know, nourish the organs that are constantly in that awake state and they're not regulating. So it's, it's those food therapy is a very important part um, of the practice. And then, of course, nutritional therapy, you know, looking at your nutrition and, and exercise therapy making sure that you're getting movement. A lot of times we just stay stagnant. And so as we grow older, it's not easy for us to run, you know, two or three miles a day or, you know, do these vigorous exercises that we're so accustomed to constantly, you know, sweating buckets. You know, as we get older, we want to we want to age gracefully. And so incorporating things like qigong, tai chi, breath movements, breath work. And medical qigong is is in fact a medical system in China that's been used for thousands of years for a variety of health conditions. And so when we combine all five of these modalities and we learn to understand this practice through a practitioner that guides us, coaches us, and shows us, then we start to change our life like completely simply by learning and understanding how in tune our body is with nature because we're we're a microsystem living in the macro and that is exactly what chinese medicine does it takes looks at nature and all of its characteristics through the five elements um water fire metal so on and we apply their characteristics and how they're similar to um our our organ system so this whole system has been developed over thousands of years in different regions of China. And these the, the information is brought down through legacy and legacy of, of family members who have been carrying these traditions. And a lot of the texts over time have been destroyed. They've been um, hidden. They've been burnt in fires. And so a lot of this information had to come through word of mouth. 
until the 1960s when things changed drastically in China. And then they were starting to see that the value of this culture and this medicine has worth and that it needed to be recorded. And that's when schools started opening up in China. But it wasn't until the 1970s that acupuncture originally came into the United States when President Nixon went to China to um, to learn about their culture and their system. And that's when their people from China were coming to the United States and starting to practice acupuncture. And we're talking like people who came from China. They didn't speak English. They, it was like mom and pop shop very you you were lucky if you could even find an acupuncturist and uh, this culture started to grow over time and now we have over 35 chinese medicine schools in our country but to date it's still we are still a minority as practitioners there's only like 30,000 uh, acupuncturists in the country and that's like one percent of the population yeah it, it's it's I just love hearing about it. So firstly, thank you, because that's, that's such a, um, a colorful history of that. And, you know, if any of us take a step back and we look at some of the Asian cultures, Okinawa is a perfect example, you know, the most densely populated per capita uh, men and women that are 100 and older, you know, and, and that are, when you see videos of them, they're still playing like they're kids, you know, they just have this whole different mindset, this whole different movement practice. Um, you know, and obviously even their, their nutrition, they're, they're very connected to the ocean. And then you look at a lot of the, you know, the, the Chinese, the, the, where there is the, the kung fu, whether it's just, I posted a video the other day of three, you know, Chinese men that must have been in their seventies and eighties doing bar muscle ups and all kinds of stuff, you know, because they just never stopped moving. They had that environment that encouraged them to move, to eat well, to, you know, to sleep well. And so I love the overlaps. Like if we take, if we look now, you know, these STEM machines that came from, if I'm not mistaken, the acupuncture needles using, you know, electrical stimulation. And now every athlete's got those things strapped to them. You know, they're, they're putting tape on attaching, you know, these, these muscle chains. And, you know, you think about chiropractic again, you're aligning those, those chakras. Basically, you're putting all the, the muscles and bones back to where they, they should be. So. What saddens me is there just seemed like there was such a push against any sort of holistic healing um, when I was young, you know, the 80s and um, 90s, where oh, that was all hippie bullshit, <laughs> for lack of a better word. So from the acupuncture lens, you know, what was the resistance that pushed so hard against a medicine that had proven itself for millennia prior to that? I think it, it kind of if you look at our country and where we're at, I mean, this is just my own personal opinion. It, it comes down to money. It comes down to greed. You know, when, when it's hard to have this conversation because I'm in the medical field and I'm very supportive of what Western medicine has done for us. But at the same time, it's like, you know, when there is no money in health, there is money in sickness. And so there's always this need for more technology and more expensive tools and machines and because that's where the money is. Look at the companies that are behind the, the, the development of this medication that they're pumping us with. And look at how the medication is created. They're all coming from the study of plant life matter and then replicated in laboratories. 
And over years and years of study and scientific research, they create a medication that is replicating this herb to help reduce the symptoms over a long period of time. So it's just all throughout our entire our livelihood in our food with the pesticides in which, you know, I do believe that there is a level of, of sanitization or just, you know, um, pre- preservation of food, but it doesn't have to be in the form of the, the chemicals that cause our immune system to break down, you know? So it's, I kind of tell, I tell people that when you come and see me, I basically put myself out of a job because nine times out of 10, you're going to be better than you were when you first walked in. Your, your pain's going to go away. You're going to feel good. And then all of a sudden, you're not going to need to see me anymore. I, I would normally see patients around the world on a cruise ship and they would follow me. They, would, they were life, life cruisers. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> you, you get on a cruise and next year you plan your, nec- your next cruise you know, the year before you get on it and they're asking me, well, what cruise are you going to be on? Cruise ship are you going to be on next? And so I'll tell them, I'm going to go to here and I'm going to go there. And they'll follow me on social media and they'll book their cruise just to come and see me. But they never come back and see me for the same symptom that they saw me the first time. They'll say, you know, my shoulder pain's gone. And, you know, I just wanted to know what can I do to help my digestion? Because they don't have an acupuncturist where they live. You know, in, in some countries, they're just not in every city. So what my point is that I put myself out of a job and because I do that, there is no residual in making money off of people who are, who are, who are well. And so it comes down to, you know, a money-making system. And I feel that that's what, what our, what our veterans are experiencing. You go to, you go to a veteran hospital and it's just lines out the door with patient after patient after patient. And I'm going to be completely honest here. You don't see an acupuncturist when you're in a veteran hospital. You're seeing somebody else who is te- who is doing acupuncture, who is also a chiropractor or an MD, and the treatments are not the same. And so that tells you a lot about the system. They're either trying to save money or they're not wanting to spend money in that department when they can easily source a practitioner in the area and send their veterans to them in their office. So that there's a lot of like challenges with this question and a lot of opinions around it and a lot of stories around it too. But at the end of the day, it's a system and we either have to fight that we can either fight the system or we can do our own research and, and investigation and make the choice to make the investment to put into our own healthcare. Yeah, and, and I agree completely. Again, it's not an extreme. It's not, oh, is it this or is it this? Give me an answer. It's it's the middle. And and I've used that exact phrase. There's no money in, in healthy or dead people, but there's a lot of money in sick. And I think that's the conversation we need to have. There is so much. I couldn't agree with you more. So much, so many amazing elements of modern medicine. But where, you know, where the money is, I think, is the, you know, the, oh, God, I'm, name just fell out of my head again the disease management excuse me so the chronic disease management so if i break my leg you're damn right i'm going to be you know the biggest cheerleader for trauma medicine people have ever seen you know if i'm having a you know, cardiac arrest and people give me you know epi then i'm going to be a huge uh, advocate for emergency medicine but if i'm obese and i have hypertension and diabetes 
I don't need a lifetime of meds. I need exercise. I need a clean diet. You know, I need sleep. I need all these elements. So to me, when medicine deviates from the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm, that's where we need to question. The same way as when farming deviates from the Hippocratic Oath and our food becomes detrimental, not um, nutritious. So those are the conversations that I think we need to to have and, and, you know, also vote with our dollar, like you said. We need to demand that we have access to, you know, the holistic side of healing. And then when we break a leg, a well-funded hospital will have all the trauma medicine and we go let Western medicine do its thing. And this is precisely what we are working on in our field. You know, in, in my field, we don't have many lobbyists in acupuncture being able to fight for what we can do. And that is also a problem for our field in you know, we're, we're looking to change that, but we, we just don't have the money to do that. And to have a lobbyist in our field is very expensive, especially from state to state. If that industry or that field is not making the income to, to be able to afford that salary, then we just don't have it. But I completely agree. And I think that when we're in, in the military, my, my father is a veteran and you, he, it's ingrained in him that because he feels good and he feels healthy that he doesn't need to do anything about it. But it's actually being able to nurture and educate people on what it is that they should be doing or they could be doing. And if you look at the pyramid, the the food pyramid that we've always been taught, it's just a very sad diet. Absolutely. And it's funny because I've, I had, um, uh, Paul de Gelder on the other day, who is, uh, um, retired Navy, um, demolition disposal diver who got bitten by a shark and lost a, an arm and a leg. Um, and he turned plant-based about three years ago. And, you know, of course the plant-based community are very staunch on the ethics as well. And I, I agree a hundred percent. I grew up, you know, with a vet as a father. So we were treating animals my whole life, but, you know, that, that's the thing, even with, with those, uh, different diet philosophies, the, the common denominator, whether you're, you know, paleo or plant-based or whatever is putting those, you know, whole foods and vegetables back in your diet and getting rid of the processed stuff. But the food di- uh, pyramid that, you know, I was raised on too is completely backwards and, and guides people towards, you know, the, the, the refined starches and sugars. Absolutely. And even though that is the food is an important factor, it's not just the fat only factor. It's like a, a percentage of what we should be doing. And that's why I always incorporate it into my lifestyle. You know, one thing that I noticed, too, is when I went to a doctor to get the, the help that I needed, they never told me about food. They never directed me towards, you know, you could be doing this and these things are going to be helpful because that's just not their job. That's not what they're trained in. So I had to go out and find out what kind of foods are going to help me reverse or have better mindset. You know, the depression, the the um, the discomfort that I was experiencing. What can I where can I get anti-inflammatories in food? I had to do all that research myself, but that can be very overwhelming for someone who doesn't know where to begin. Absolutely. Well, speaking of that, so so inflammation, chronic inflammation is definitely something that plagues, you know, my profession. And then, you know, hypervigilance, you know, uh, a constant sympathetic state. So 
obviously the people listening ideally are going to go to a practitioner but just to give them an idea of some options out there what are some of the foods and or herbs that are good at deregulating and, and reducing inflammation as well so if we're talking just about foods I, it's very common that things like turmeric and and ginger are, are very helpful in in decreasing inflammation um the use of essential oils is very helpful as well. I, I know that growing up, I would use things like Icy Hot for an achy leg. But, you know, the ingredients that are in those kinds of products is petroleum jelly. And petroleum jelly is not an organic compound and it's not good for us. And so we want to use things that are more natural. So using essential oils with the carrier oil is beneficial, like wintergreen oil, um, you know, peppermint essential oil. And, and this comes from the study of aromatics in Chinese medicine. All of these aromatics have these therapeutic properties that are beneficial for helping increase the, the body's ability to decrease inflammation. Um, there are certain smoothie protocols that include food groups that you can blend. And when you blend these foods together, it it brings down, it breaks down the food to a micronized substance. So that's kind of like chewing your food 10,000 times. And when you do that, it gets right into your digestive tract and your body absorbs all the nutrients very quickly. And so this means in turn, you can eliminate, eliminate all of the junk that's being stored in your cells. That's all the stuff that's causing inflammation to be eliminated from your system. And when we do that, when we are hyper-oxygenating our blood with the appropriate foods that decrease inflammation, then we are allowing our system to heal and help our system get past the inflammation. So everyone's different. And even though there are lots of foods out there that help decrease the inflammation, if you've been taking turmeric for say three or four months, turmeric might stop working for you. So we have to find out what is the pattern? What is the story that the body's telling us? So we can find the right kind of food diet the right kind of herbs to help treat that system, to treat that pain. And that's what makes Chinese medicine so different from functional medicine and Western herbs or even herbalist. We study herbology and that's like 45,000 herbs in our you know, pharmacopoeia, so to speak. And there are several hundred formulas that, are, that come from that. Whereas in Western culture, we only have like a handful of maybe like a hundred or more of herbs, but they don't combine them. So the combination of herbs to identify, to help identify and resolve a negative pattern in a body is highly essential. So that's why nobody is the same and we can't necessarily say, oh, this for inflammation, this for bacterial infection. It depends on the individual and what the story the body is telling. Right. Now, what about immunity? Because obviously this last year, it's really pulled the curtain back on the ill health of populations. And people don't like hearing that conversation, but it needs to be up there as importantly as, you know, masks, isolation, social distancing, lockdowns, all these things that we hear over and over again. So with the acupuncture, with the herbal medicine, you know, what are some of the the tools people have to boost their immunity? Um, you know, not just now, but but ongoing to any kind of diseases that are out there. 
There is uh, soup recipes, eating soup in the wintertime, for example, onion soup with turmeric and ginger, just boiling the onions and drinking the broth is highly beneficial for anti-inflammatory and antibacterial. It just helps support the immune system. And that's what we're looking for. Even if somebody feel like, feels like they're coming on with a little bit of a tingle, immediately making that putting, adding uh, cinnamon to your tea. Cinnamon in Chinese medicine is is immune boosting. And it's also great for hormones too. So adding cinnamon, cinnamon sticks in in your coffee is beneficial. Um, Taking scalenes and dipping them, onion scalenes and dipping them in sea salt at the onset of like maybe some congestion or um, some cough and just chomping on that, you know, the night before or during the day. Yes, it has a little bit of a, a smell, but it's better than having to take over-the-counter medication that that has that only covers up the symptoms. Okay, so drinking teas, herbal teas, herbal teas that um, are combined with herbs. I mean, we, these days you can source an acupuncturist, and they will provide you with herbal formulas that are general for immune boosting. And there are a variety of them. I mean, the studies have shown that there are formulations that help boost the immune system in times of respiratory, you know, stress. And so a lot of these challenges that we're experiencing in our culture right now have been positively dealt with in Asian cultures. And they are experiencing much positive results because of the, of the, um, the influence of herbs. Yeah, it's fascinating. And another thing that, uh, you know, when you were talking earlier about qigong and um, tai chi is breath work as well. And I think that's a, a conversation I'm having. There's a, a, a guest coming on who's developed, you know, like a resistance trainer, a breathing resistance trainer. But that's another conversation that we should be having, whether it's through pure just exercise, whether it's through a trainer, whether it's through qigong. And having the posture that supports the breathing and then having breath work that's another way of positively affecting as you said respiratory assault absolutely and it's like essential right now because not only are we going through the whole pandemic but we're also going through a pandemic of people experiencing these experiences of anxiety and depression and people who are in life-saving services they're all they've been dealing with this probably their whole career so this these techniques of qigong and breath work are are things that we can own and not have to pay for you know we have the ability to heal within us it's how do we access this ability to heal within us and breath work calming the mind down going to our breath allowing these these thoughts that come up into our mind and observing them and not giving them too much attention, but observing them and allowing them to just dissipate allows our body, our organs to assimilate the emotions that we're experiencing that then translate to the level of um, body fluids and blood that is nourishing our organs because all of our organs have a vibrational frequency. And what I mean by that is when we are negatively impacted by these external factors and emotions that are causing us to feel depression, we begin to resonate at a lower frequency, a hertz. And this starts to become heavy on the system. 
And when it starts to become heavy on the system, then that's when the organs are starting to rob energy from each other. And so when we go to our breath, when we, when we incorporate meditation, when we incorporate hypnotism into our lifestyle, when we go into you know walking Qigong, movement, and allowing to be present and aware of where we are right now, then that's when we're tapping into our ability to heal because we're training our brain and telling it what we want it to do. And sometimes we have to use acupuncture and herbs because that's like the training wheels, so to speak. But once you've mastered the breath work, once you've mastered the the internal working, acupuncture and qigong, you don't, don't need it anymore. You've, you're, you're good. Actually, that's the qigong. Qigong is the mother of acupuncture. So once you've mastered qigong, then you don't need acupuncture anymore. Yeah. Well, back to what you said, I think that's a very important point that I've heard, you know, obviously from you, I've heard from uh, chiropractors, I've heard from, you know, movement practitioners, that philosophy of I want to put myself out of a job, I don't want to see you again, you know, and and obviously the way that they sustain is you have good success. And that person tells three people like, oh, my God, this person was amazing. You need to go see him now. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the sustainable kind of model. But yeah, I mean, that I think is what's so different between holistic healing practices and some of the disease management we see at the moment is if you and I get hypertension, they're like, all right, well, just take these pills the rest of your life. That is such a horrendous, you know, I mean, that's, it's an insult to call yourself a wellness practitioner versus the goal being, let's say you take hypertension meds, say you're chronically hypertensive. And you use that like, all right, I'm, we're going to have a, a two-month plan. I'm going to give you these because it's dangerously high. But in the meantime, you know, going to see this nutritionist. We're going to change your diet and we need to try and get that weight off you. You're going to start moving. You're going to start you know, changing your, your nutrition. And I want you off these pills in three months or six months. But there isn't that philosophy. And I think that is another... And a very important thing when, when someone's talking to any health practitioner, it can be modern medicine, functional medicine, Chinese medicine, is if the focus is to get you better, then you're in the right place. If the focus is you've got this thing, you're going to have to live with it forever, it's probably a good sign to go find someone else. I love that you 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 talk about that and you put that out there because it's very true. And I have seen multiple people that I've worked with who have had that experience. They'll go in and the, they'll be given an injection. They'll be given a medication and they'll crash the middle of the day. Their A1C numbers are like in the 200s. They're, they've been told they need to lose weight and they don't know where to go. They don't know what to do. They don't even know how they got to where they're at. But the moment that I actually start getting on a conversation with them, I start meeting with them on a regular basis. And even you know these days in my field, we, we're making it even easier for people to reach us no matter where you are through telemedicine. The, the changes in your physiology happen overnight because your mind is being conditioned from the practitioner who's saying that we're going to get you better. This is what we're going to do. Have confidence. You're already healing from that moment that you've made the conscious decision that this is not going to be the life that you live. So when we turn on those things and we, we decide, that's when the healing begins. And it's true. When you, there is a way for you to reverse these health conditions that are chronic. And East Asian medicine, natural medicine has a solution for that. 
Beautiful. All right. Well, I need to transition so I can get some closing questions in a minute, but let's talk about the Human Potential Summit. Tell people what that is and when they can you know, look forward to that. So the Human Potential Summit has been my baby for at least three years. It's always been my vision to collaborate with a variety of my colleagues that I've met along the way who have specialties in certain aspects of Chinese medicine because it's, again, it's an entire medical system. And these are people who I've been to school with, people I've met along the way, people who have taken an interest in, let's say, neurology or neuropathy. And I have handpicked these speakers to come in and talk about their profession and how Chinese medicine works from their, their perspective, food therapy, um, on herbology, and to just take and guide individuals down a path of uncertainty and become more clear in what Chinese medicine is. There are many summits out there that address the gut, better dieting, fasting, detoxification, and never have I seen Chinese medicine practitioners appear as a speaker on those platforms. And so I am bringing to light these conversations that need to be heard and need to be had in efforts to provide understanding and education to people all over the, all over the country. And the, there's over 21 speakers, and it's a, it's a session where you, you come in and you listen to five speakers or six speakers a day, and you, know, you can come in and you can ask questions, and then you can also download you know, material that shows you how to find these practitioners. You can visit them, you can contact them, you can email them. We want to put you in direct contact with these people so you can start building up your, your knowledge and your resources of who you need to contact for whatever health concern you know, our audience is dealing with. Beautiful. I love that. Well, then extending out from that. So what about you personally? How can people reach out to you and, and uh, participate in your programs? I have, I'm very active on social media and on Instagram. You can find me at TCM Chick, C-H-I-C. It, TCM means traditional Chinese medicine. I talk a lot about Chinese medicine and I also collaborate with other practitioners. I like to interview other practitioners on my platform and even people who are not even in Chinese medicine. And I also have a very active Facebook page and a Facebook group called Holistic Approach to Optimal Health. That's where we talk about different conditions and how this medicine can help you evolve through that challenge. And I also have a website. And my website is antonicachanel.com. And you can reach me through my website. Uh, I offer a 30-minute complimentary consultations where I learn about your condition. And no matter where you are in the country, I will source a practitioner within an hour away or maybe um, 15, 20 minutes away, depending on the city that you're in. And I will reach out to that practitioner and I will recommend that you go and see them and we'll correspond back and forth. And then I will continue to you know, work with you on a, on a long-term basis, depending on the condition that you're going that the individual is going through so there is no limitation there is no border of of limitation when it comes to to healing it's just a matter of knowing that one person that's going to guide you in the right direction and i feel that that is that's that person is me along with a lot of other colleagues that i am connected with 
I think that's fantastic. And like you said, with the free consultation, that's huge. So now people can take the first step and feel empowered. Absolutely. You know, and because I can do it over Zoom, I see you, I see you face to face. I take them very seriously. There's a, a process and a protocol through email, you know, paperwork that I have you sign. Everything's private. But I, I want to be accessible, especially for my service members. And I don't I don't know that enough people know about this opportunity. And so this is where my heart is. And I'm glad that I can provide this. Fantastic. All right. Well, I want to get to some closing questions. I'd love to get your thoughts on these. Um, the very first one, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. So there's a book that's very uh, common within my field called The Web That Has No Weaver. And it was the very first book that I read about Chinese medicine. And I had to read it a couple of times because it was just so profound and, and so in-depth that... Um, and it explains how Chinese medicine works in the different elements. And it's written by a man called Ted Kepchek. And he is a very um, uh, no, notable person in our field. And then I would also recommend, you know, material by Joe Dispenza. Joe Dispenza talks about the the neurology behind our healing power. And it help, he helps us uh, put together, you know, w- the way we think, the way we train our brain really is the framework that sets us sets us up for success. Brilliant. Is he he's related to uh, Guyam? Is that right? He is. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Perfect. All right. Well, then, what about uh, a film, a movie? There's a movie that's called Six Thousand Needles, and I I believe it's on YouTube. It's it might be a little hard to find. You, you might have to dig it out on, on Google, but it's about a man who was a bodybuilder in the most epic shape ever than that you could ever imagine. And one day he was lifting weights and all of a sudden he had a really bad stroke. And for six months, nine months, 10 months, he went through physical therapy. He wasn't able to walk. He, he just lost all, you know, motor ability and nobody told him about Chinese medicine. And so Chinese medicine was the last resort that he had and he went to China his, him and his family went to China and discovered acupuncture now if he would have tried it months before he tells you that you know they tell you that you would have gotten much more mobility but it talks about his journey and how if he knew this if the medical system would have told him that this would have been an option for him then that's the, that's the choice he would have made so I highly recommend that because it was just a game changer for me and also a game changer for, for my stroke patients that I treat. Beautiful. I'm definitely have to watch that because I've got some, you know, first responder friends that have had strokes. And luckily the two that I'm thinking of, you know, have, have definitely improved immensely. But I mean, my goodness, if that could help push them even further, then that'd be amazing. So I will be watching that. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the next question, is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Wow. There are so many. (laughs) There are so many speakers that are out there. Um, There is one gentleman, his, he was an old, he was an old professor of mine. His name is Tim Corbin and he was prior service and in fact, he was one of the first few people that I met before coming to, to medical school. And he teaches on a specific um, part of the body, which is the ear. 
auricular therapy. And he has a profound study of auricular therapy and how it positively impacts the nervous system, especially those who are experiencing PTSD. And so he is, Tim Corbin is definitely someone to, to reach out to. And he teaches, he teaches all around, all around the, the, all around Florida. I would have to say as well, um, Dr. Cameron Bishop is one of my favorite practitioners. He is my college professor and he uses Japanese acupuncture and moxa. And he is a profound speaker. And right now he is just speaking and he is retired from acupuncture practice. He's the only person who has a PhD in Japanese acupuncture. Brilliant. And you said he's based in uh, Florida? Yes, he's in, in Palm Beach. Ah, okay. Perfect. I'm actually going to be down there in a couple of weeks. But yeah, I'm going to be down South Florida a lot. My uh, my wife's going to be in school down there. So brilliant. Thank you so much. All right. Well, then the last question. Um, what do you do to decompress? What do I do to decompress? Well, I begin my day with a three-minute visualization and a meditation. And a meditation just is me focusing on my breath the inhale and the exhale and just observing the thoughts that go through my mind. And I also like to do a few movements that help wake my body up in the morning and a gratitude, I give thanks. So I spend about 30 minutes a day doing that. And throughout the day, I just give thank- thankful. I'm just grateful and thankful. And I just allow myself to be present always just trying to get present, just wanting to get present. What does it feel like to be right here in this moment right now? Beautiful. That's what I love about conversation. I think that deep conversation puts you in that state, which is why it's so enjoyable. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, this has been, you know, an, an amazing conversation from tiny houses to, you know, the, the aviation in, in the Coast Guard and now your journey through Chinese medicine. So I've learned a huge amount. I'm sure the people listening have as well. But uh, I just appreciate you taking the time to tell your story today. Thank you so much for allowing me to have this experience and to share my story. Um, this has just been wonderful and I hope that this will reach many homes. 